Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll be looking uh, primarily at verses 13 through 15 this morning as we continue our study in Peter's first letter written to a, a group of churches that are scattered throughout modern day Turkey. So as we come to chapter 2 verse 13, Peter begins to shift his emphasis. Uh, up to this point, he's been uh, talking to believers in terms of many different duties that they should perform to one another. They need to love one another. They need to pursue obedience, holiness. They need to understand who they are in Christ Jesus. But starting in verse 13, he now begins to shift his focus on how they are to respond in part to unbelievers. And the main theme here is the theme of submission. So he's going to address the believer's response to the state should be one of general submission. Slaves to their master's submission. Wives to their husband's submission. And that's kind of the direction that he's going to be going in. So I'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records this for our blessing and edification when he writes, submit, their, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 16 and 17. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So I want to bring in the end of verse 17, honor the king, and join that with verses 13 through 15, because all of this is basically dealing with what our attitude should be to our government, to our civil authorities. So the first thing we see in, uh, in our passage in verse 13 is that Paul, that Peter is exhorting us to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or to governors. So basically the requirement, the command is to submit to human authorities. Now submission implies being subject, it implies being obedient to the civil authorities, and even though we're aliens and strangers in this world, remember Peter has emphasized that several times, our real home is in heaven, our eternal citizenship is in heaven, but we are still citizens on earth. We have a dual citizenship. And we have responsibilities to our government through our dual citizenship, the citizenship that we have here on earth. So in effect, what he's saying is that we should be law-abiding citizens. And this is something that he's emphasizing in this particular passage. 
Now notice he mentions every human institution. He primarily has a government in view because he mentions a king or to governors as sent by him. Now the king is a reference to Caesar. And in the Greek speaking part of the Roman Empire, uh, when they referred to Caesar, they referred to him as their king. So we're talking about Caesar here. And the, the, the Caesar that was on the throne, probably when Peter wrote this letter, is Nero Caesar. And he was not a good guy. Uh, Nero was on the throne, but he was a poor ruler. He was cruel. He claimed deity. He murdered members of his own family. He killed his half-brother. He killed two of his wives. He killed his own mother. I mean, this is not the guy you want on the throne. But that was Nero. That's whom God, who's sovereign over all of these things, put on the throne. So Peter is telling them that they are to submit to the governing authorities because even by the grace of God, through common grace, even bad rulers normally honor certain laws that are good, even if there's a lot of corrupt things involved in their own personal lives or in the government itself. But they are to submit to the king, who's the highest authority in the nation, or to governors who are sent by him, who are under his authority. And this could refer to like Governor Pilate, Pontius Pilate, Felix, Festus, some of the governors, the Roman governors that we read about in the book of Acts. So basically, we are to be subordinate to our human, our government authorities. Now notice he says in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. In other words, this is because the Lord wants us to do this. Is to be obedient to Christ's will that therefore we are subject to our governing authorities. And in general, that should be our Christian witness. Now remember, Jesus said this even in His own teaching ministry when He exhorted His disciples, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So He's acknowledging we have a dual citizenship. We have duties and responsibilities to God, our highest authority, but we also have duties and responsibilities to our Caesar, to our governmental authority. And Christ has rendered to both what is owed them, what is due them. And of course, in that context, it was in the, the area of paying taxes. But we're to do it for the Lord's sake. Now, Paul in Romans 13, when he gives a parallel teaching on this, he says, obey your governing authorities for conscience sake. So now it brings in this personal conscience that we have in terms of our obedience, doing it uh, because we believe that's what the Scriptures would have us to do. Now, why the exhortation? Well, because in general, if you look at the historical context, uh, the church was growing up in an environment where the Jews oftentimes were, were very prone to insurrection. So, in 63 B.C., the Romans conquered Jerusalem. The Jews didn't like that. There were frequent insurrections against the Romans during this period. In 40 B.C., the Romans made Judea into a Roman province. 
of part of the Roman Empire. 37 B.C., Herod the Great was appointed king by Caesar. At that time, he was king over Judea. And then when he died in 4 B.C., 10 years after that, in 6 A.D., Judea now came under direct Roman administration. So that's when you have the governors like Pilate begin to show up and rule over Judea. The Jews didn't like that. It promoted a lot of violent clashes as the Jews rebelled against the Romans. They didn't like the Romans ruling over them. And a few years after Peter writes this letter, in 66 A.D., there's going to be a full-scale revolt against the Roman Empire by the Jews. And the Romans are going to come in and eventually destroy Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. So the Jews were constantly pushing back and revolting and, and, and uh, having these insurrections. The reason why they did that is because in their own law, they were told that they were only to have a Jewish king over them. So in Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, it says, You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. So they believed they had biblical precedence for rebelling against any king that was not Jewish. So the Roman Caesar king obviously was not Jewish. King Herod was not a Jew either. That's why he never really got the support of the Jewish people, King Herod himself. So all of this uh, just is a reason why Peter is now telling the church, look, don't be like the Jews. Don't imitate their rebellious nature. Uh, I want you to be a law-abiding citizen And in doing so, at least you will help to diminish the persecution that the Roman government will bring against you if you start acting like the Jews and you're just going to bring in more persecution. And so Jesus is saying, look, be a good citizen. Avoid unnecessary persecution. uh, Be subordinate to the governing officials. and, uh, And don't be like the rebelliousness of the Jews. So that's basically the uh, the admonition, the command to be subordinate to our civil authorities. Now the reason why we should do that is given at the end of verse 14 because this these civil authorities are there for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So basically the government should punish evildoers. And that's a major function of government. And by punishing evil, they can restrain evil. That's a part of God's common grace in government. So that uh, we're not to take our own revenge, but we're to let the government punish the evil that's taking place in our society. We don't go out and take it into our own hands like vigilantes or something like that. If the government does not fulfill its duty in this area, then the society, the culture will just decay into anarchy. And that's why every every society needs a good law enforcement system. Uh, because they're the ones who are supposed to punish the criminals and punish the evildoers. 
They're also, in verse 14, supposed to praise those who do right. Now, that sounds very strange to us. Uh, we don't see our government praising us very often. I mean, when you do, when you do your, your blinker to make a, a turn and a policeman is there, you don't see him salute you or clap because he's praising you for doing what is right. So this sounds kind of strange in our own ears. But back in the Roman system, uh, the Roman philosophy of government, rulers were kind of a father as well as a magistrate. And if a citizen did something to really bless the community, uh, then the government would honor that citizen and maybe erect a statue for them or grant privileges to them or honor them in some way or another. So they, they did that probably a little bit more than we experienced within our own society. But this is kind of an interesting because this is the purpose of government to punish the evil and praise the good. So who determines what's evil and what's good? It's not man. Ultimately, it's God, of course. God determines what's evil and God determines what's good. And this is where the church can have and should have an influence on our government in trying to at least uh, influence them to the basic morality that reflects the law of nature written upon the heart of everybody uh, through creation. Uh, obviously, governments sometimes get this turned upside down. And instead of punishing the evil, they punish the righteous. Instead of praising those who do right or do good, they punish those who do good. Remember, Christ Himself was crucified by a government that didn't punish evil, that punished the Son of God. So you're, we're, we're dealing with governments that oftentimes don't live up to what the biblical standards should be for them because like the Scriptures say, sometimes they call evil good and good evil as Isaiah rebuked the people in his day. But the church again, not that we're going to be successful, but we should have an influence. John the Baptist reprimanded uh, King Herod for his adultery and all the wicked things that he did. Uh, Christ told Pilate that he what he was doing was sin. He said, he who betrayed me to you has the greater sin, but what Pilate was doing was sin as well. The Lord Jesus pointed that out. We're to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We're to expose the deeds of darkness. And that's part of the ministry I think the church can have on our government. But again, we live in a fallen world where government oftentimes doesn't get it right. Uh, not only was Christ unjustly condemned by Jewish leaders, by a Jewish king, and by Roman, the Roman governor. So government fell on all three of those levels, but the Apostle James was later put to death by King Herod Agrippa. So again, sometimes government just doesn't get it right. But their, their purpose is to punish evil and to praise those who do right. So what is the purpose of our submission? Well, in verse 15, Peter says, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So the purpose of our being submissive to civil authorities in general 
is because it's doing the will of God. That's what God wants us to do. It's for our own protection, not to bring the heat or the persecution down upon us, but it's just something that the Lord wants us to do. Now in verse 15, when it says that by doing what is right, that word literally is by doing good, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. By doing good. So part of the purpose of submission is to silence those who would turn to the church and say, well, they're just a bunch of you know, lawbreakers. They're a bunch of criminals. And what our response to that should be not to return evil for evil, but to overcome evil with good. So what Peter is saying is that the church to protect themselves from the ignorance, the slander of unbelievers is that we need to excel in doing good. In other words, Christians, we're to love our neighbor. We're to do good to our fellow man. We're to seek for their welfare. We're to be instruments of good in society. So when people say, you know, those Christians are all evil, they're bad. No, some others would say, well, no, I see them out doing good. They're a blessing to our community. You know, maybe they're out picking up trash or maybe they're out there helping the poor or whatever it may be. They're doing good and that will silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we're actually to be proactive in doing good. Volunteering in ways to be a blessing to our fellow men. To have a to have a ministry within our community. Gospel ministry, absolutely. But even just in, in doing common grace kind of things to help and benefit, that's how we love our neighbor. We share the Gospel with them, but we also try to help them when we can. And that's going to silence, or the word is used, the word silence can be used a muzzling, like muzzling a, a, a mad dog with rabies or something. We muzzle, we shut the mouths of the ignorance of foolish men. Ignorance meaning not that they have a low IQ, but they're spiritually ignorant of the Gospel. They're spiritually ignorant of God, which puts them in the fool category. So the purpose of submission is basically so that by our good deeds, we're to be rich in good deeds, by our love of God, by our love of our neighbor, then we can silence the accusations of outsiders against the church saying we're just a bunch of wild, unlawful people. And Peter says, no, don't, don't, don't live your life that way. Submit, be a good citizen is basically what he's saying. Do good to your neighbor. And that will help protect our reputation within a culture that is not Christian. That's kind of the idea that he's, that he's making here. So the main point is that we must be law-abiding citizens so that even those who hate Christ and reject the Gospel cannot use the law to persecute us because we're outbreaking the law. So I think that's kind of the main main point that that he's trying to get to. Now the other question that's raised is what about civil disobedience? Is that ever appropriate? Is it ever biblical? And the principle that most people will will come up with can be stated something like this, that if man's laws oppose God's laws, then we obey God because God is our highest authority. 
So when it comes to civil disobedience, now the general principle is be submissive to civil government. But the issue is raised, well, do we have to obey everything? Is there ever a reason not to obey our civil government? And Peter was aware of that issue. He didn't, he didn't bring it into the text here. He didn't raise that question here. But we certainly know how he would respond to that issue because he himself engaged in, in civil disobedience at times in his own ministry. For example, if you look back at uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 18, Peter and John have been out preaching the gospel. They healed the lame man, the temple, and they were arrested. And they were brought before the council. This would be the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin within Israel was the supreme authority, the highest authority within the Jewish nation of both the religious authority, but also the civil authority. Because the Sanhedrin was the one that carried out punishments and this guy needs to be stoned and these kinds of things. So they were not only a religious authority, they were the civil authority. So here Peter and John get brought before the council and they were commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they're engaging in civil disobedience because the rulers of their nation, now still they're under the Roman rule, but within the nation they had a certain independence to govern these things. So the, their civil authorities, their religious authorities commanded them, do not preach in the name of Christ. And they said, well, Christ has commanded us to preach, so you tell us, who do we obey? Do we obey God or do we obey you? And we cannot disobey God. So we're going to keep preaching the Gospel. So they were engaging. For, for the Gospel, they were engaging in civil disobedience when the government told them, stop preaching the Gospel. Then they disobeyed. So they were uh, released. But then in chapter 5, they get arrested again. And this time the high priest, who is the head guy over the Sanhedrin, questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, now all the apostles are saying, we must obey God rather than men. So when man's laws oppose or contradict God's laws, we obey God. If we have to, even if we have to disobey human law. Because God is the highest authority of all. And when those two laws conflict, we owe our allegiance to our highest authority, which is the Lord God. And that's what they did. Now, there are consequences to this. If you disobey the civil authorities, you have to be willing to suffer the consequences. And the apostles had to suffer the consequences. In fact, later on, after they make this statement, 
they had a little huddle. The, the council had a little huddle. Gamaliel, you know, gave his advice in Acts chapter 5. And then they called back the apostles and they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So now they got flogged. So this is the consequence because government is power. Government is force. And when you disobey government, then you have to suffer the consequences of, of the disobedience. But they were willing to do that for the gospel. So they were flogged. And notice they were ordered. They didn't lift the, the, the law. They were ordered and commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. And look at how they responded. They went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. And did they stop preaching? No. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Civil disobedience. Because the government was telling them, do not preach the Gospel. And they said, God's law is higher than man's law. We we have to obey God. And if you engage in civil disobedience and do that, then you just have to be willing to pay the consequences for the sake of Christ, the Gospel. Now, there's lots of examples of civil disobedience in the Bible. The Hebrew midwives that disobeyed Pharaoh. They wouldn't put the baby boys to death. Moses before Pharaoh, who uh, would not uh, give in to the demands of, of Pharaoh. Jeremiah was thrown in jail and later throwing down into a mud pit at the bottom of a cistern because he would not he would not do what the king wanted him to do. Daniel and the three friends, the three friends, remember, wouldn't bow down to the golden image. They got thrown into the furnace of fire and Christ appeared with them and rescued them there. Lots of examples of where because God's law is higher than man's law, we have examples of people obeying God which caused them to disobey man and then there's consequences with some of them. Throughout church history, there's a ton of examples. William Tyndale, you know, fled England so he could translate the Bible into English, which he was not supposed to do. That was illegal to do. So he went to another country so he could translate the Word of God into English. John Bunyan, you know, was in prison for 12 years where he wrote, uh, Pilgrim's Progress because he wouldn't refuse to, to preach the gospel in England. Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up against the Nazi regime to try to help protect the Jews and was thrown in prison and put to death there. Bible smugglers. Think about that. People that are breaking the laws by trying to smuggle Bibles. But what's the higher law? The higher law is a great commission. We're to make disciples of all the nations. Well, how can you make the disciple of all the nations if, if all the nations don't have the Word of God? If they don't have the Gospel. So people risk their lives to try to bring in the Bible into those closed up countries. So again, these are issues of conscience. Um, but they're issues that raise up that issue that in general, we're to be good citizens, law-abiding citizens. But if the government ever tells you to break one of God's laws, we obey God. And again, sometimes there may be consequences to that. Also, I want to just point out, if you look down at verse 17, uh, Peter emphasizes 
he closes out this section by saying, honor the king. Honor the king. So honor Caesar. Uh, Again, Jesus reminded his disciples to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But this raises a question, okay, if we're to honor the king and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, who is our king in America? Who is our Caesar? Because see, we have to take the Word of God and try to apply it to our own culture. And our government is totally different than the Roman government, right? I mean, the Roman government was kind of a dictatorship. It was a, it was a, it was a government. There was a Senate there, but they kind of rubber stamped whatever the, the Caesar wanted for the most part. So who is our king? We don't have a king in America. In fact, our own constitution says we don't award titles of nobility to people in our country. So we have a totally different kind of government. So we have to ask ourselves, well then, applying this principle, we're to honor the king, we're to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Who is our Caesar and who is our, who is our king? Well, in our form of government, back when we established uh, our, our government, after we fought the uh, War of Independence against England, uh, we didn't want a king. We didn't want that kind of hierarchy again because we just fought a war against a king. So we don't want that kind of government here. So the people came together, we the people, and they established the Constitution of the United States of America And that constitution, they said, would be the highest authority in government. So we're trying to draw, okay, how do we apply honor the king with honoring what in America? So the king is the highest authority within the Roman Empire. He's the highest authority. So let's transfer that to our system of government what is our highest authority in america because that would be you could say our king well when we the people came together reforming our our country we the people and notice i've got a picture of the constitution up here notice how big the letters are they put on we the people because in a certain sense we the people are the highest authority in our country we the people are the ones who established the Constitution. And everything else in our Constitution is a smaller print. But I think they're, they put we the people because they're trying to draw emphasis that all of this flows from we the people. That's our, that's our, uh, our type of government. So what we did back then was we established a Constitution And the Constitution says in Article 6, it's the supreme law of the land. So what's the highest authority in America? Well, is it the President? The office? The White House? Is it the Congress? Is it the Supreme Court? What is the highest authority in America so we can better understand what our king is in a sense because we need to honor our king. So I'm going to give you my two cents worth on this. And uh, feel free to, to differ. But this is my, my thinking on this. When we talk about the parallel of the king to America, it's not the president. Because in our Constitution, 
the president is required to swear an oath. And this oath is actually stated in our Constitution. This is what it says. Whenever he takes office, whichever president it is, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. In other words, he has a higher authority and that's the Constitution. He swears an oath unto God that he will preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So our President is not the highest authority. He's not equivalent to the King in America. He has an authority above Him. How about Congress or our judicial system? Well, the Constitution requires them to swear an oath also. Now that oath is not given for them. This is the one they they have done traditionally. One for the President is actually found in the Constitution, but this is the one they swear. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That is, to the Constitution. Uh, So help me God. And George Washington added that in his oath, and that's been the tradition for the President as well. But you say, okay, well, is the Congress our king? Is that equivalent to our king today? Or the judicial system, the Supreme Court or all the courts? Well, they all swear an oath unto God that they have a higher authority. That they are to defend, to protect against all enemies. And they are to rule in light of their higher authority. So what is the highest authority in America? Okay, my two cents worth is that ultimately our Caesar, our King, would be equivalent to our Constitution. So we're to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and honor our King. Well, what is our King in America? What is our highest authority? Well, in our form of government, if we're trying to apply Scripture to how we should think and act, I think it would be the Constitution. Now, we don't, we know all the elected officials are a part of that. We need to render obedience to them. We need to honor them as well. But the highest authority, I think, would ultimately be our Constitution. Now, we the people are responsible for this because we the people are supposed to vote and put into office our representatives and our senators. And if someone in, and our president, and if one of those is not honoring the Constitution, our highest authority, then we have the responsibility and the duty to vote them out of office, put someone in there we like better. But it's the we the people. So we the people, I don't view us as the king. We made a king, which is the Constitution. But we're like the bodyguard to the king. We're to protect it. We're to defend it. And if our representatives and elected officials are not doing it, then we have the right to come and try to remove them and then put someone else into office. So the way I kind of like to view it now is that we the people are the bodyguard to our king. And the king is ultimately the Constitution. Because all three branches of our government swear an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. That's their higher authority. So that's my two cents worth on how we apply that into our different form of government that was so much different than the Roman government. Because we don't have kings. We don't have royalty. We don't have a Caesar. 
So who is our highest authority? So to me, that's that's my thoughts. So here's in uh, wrapping this up. How do we honor our king? Well, we certainly pray for our elected leaders. We pray that they would be faithful to confirm their oath of office, that they swore an oath to God to protect and defend the Constitution. But Paul exhorts us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for our leaders. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we need to be praying for our governing leaders, all of them, from the president all the way down, even to the local level. We should, we should pray for them, pray for God's blessing upon them, pray that they would uh, be instruments of preserving our liberties and our freedoms. You know, our Constitution has a Bill of Rights in there. A long list of freedoms that the government is supposed to protect. That's our form of government. We have freedoms given to us by God. Our government is supposed to protect those freedoms. So we need to be praying for them that they would. And notice how Paul emphasizes in this exhortation to pray for our leaders so we can lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, you have religious freedom, religious liberty, that the government is not suppressing you or oppressing you for living out your faith, your Christian faith. That's what Paul wants for the church. He wants religious liberty. Because that religious liberty would enable them to share the Gospel without fear, to be able to worship without the the government interference. Because if that's not there, then you have to go underground. And so Paul really desires that in our prayer life, we pray that we can preserve religious liberty and freedom within our country. And I think that's the emphasis that he makes. So we need to certainly pray. We also need to be informed and participate Because again, our king, our Caesar, if you will, the Constitution requires that we, the people, must be involved in our government. We're the ones who vote people into office and out of office. That is our responsibility. That is your responsibility. That's what our king, our Caesar, requires of us. It requires that the people become informed and they participate and they vote. A minimum that they vote. Uh, it's amazing. On the average, one in six people decide who the president of the United States is going to be because most people don't vote. That's 17% of our population determine who the president's going to be. One in eight people determine the Congress. That's 12%. And only 3 to 6% of Americans show up to vote for city and school board elections. So we just need to do our duty. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, Caesar requires of us that we vote. That we get informed and we vote. And a lot of people don't, don't do that. But we honor our king, if you will, as we pray for our governing leaders and also as we get informed and participate and 
boat. Even then, Jeremiah exhorted uh, the Jews who were taken off into captivity into Babylon. He says, okay, you're exiles out there. You're living in a foreign land. It's not a, it's not a Jewish land at all. And you're living out there now. You're in exile for a number of years. But this is what your attitude needs to be. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on this behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And I think the application is that we're exiles too. I mean, Peter has told us we're exiles living on this earth. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven. So we're exiles now. So we need to pray. We need to seek the welfare of our nation. Welfare of our city. By doing good and being a godly example. Um, Let me go back. Notice that part of our duty as the people is to understand, I think, the principles of our Caesar, our king. In other words, to understand the principles of our constitution. One of the things I just want to really emphasize again is that our government was designed to maximize our individual freedoms. The very First Amendment talks about freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of petition. That's only one of the first ten amendments that are our Bill of Rights. And I think, as Christians, to honor our King, to be a blessing within the context of our government, which is not the Roman government, but to be submissive to it and to honor it, we need to understand some of those basic principles that our nation was founded upon. Uh, We certainly should not idolize liberty or freedom. The church can survive and thrive under any form of government. Just look around the world. The church is is growing in communist countries. The church is growing in Muslim countries. Now they pay a price. They have to go underground. They can suffer tremendously at times. But we don't want to idolize freedom and liberty. But nevertheless, within our system of government, that is a great blessing that our founding fathers wanted us to preserve. Because freedom is always better than slavery. Freedom is always better than slavery. And our founding fathers wanted us to be free. You know, even the Apostle Paul, listen to this, when he, when he was writing to Corinth, and there, there are a number of slaves that were members. They were believers and they were members of the church of Corinth. And he said to them, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But, if you are able also to become free, rather do that. In other words, you're in a system where you're a slave. But if there is a way for you to become free, if you can earn the money to buy your freedom, if you can appeal to whoever you need to appeal and work the system to become free, do that. That's better. Rather do that. Because freedom is always better than slavery. Unless you're a slave to God. And that's the greatest form of freedom that there is.
So our responsibilities to our civil government is we're to be submissive. We're to also honor it. To honor it, I think, means to understand the principles that our civil government should operate by. And I think we have to remember that our religious liberties that were so important to the Apostle Paul are tied to our civil liberties. And they both stand or fall together. If you lose your civil liberties, like the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of petition, if you lose those rights, you're going to lose your religious liberties as well. They stand or fall together. And that's why I think when if we're going to honor our King and try to be a blessing within our government, those two go together. The, uh, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court appointed by George Washington, who is a, a very solid believer and Christian. Not all of our founding fathers were Christians. They, even the unbelievers, I think, had a basic Christian worldview. But he was a president of the American Bible Society. But this is what he said. He, he wanted to emphasize the importance of Christianity within our country, but also the importance of the Constitution. Because the religious liberty and the civil liberties are tied together. If one falls, the other falls. And he said, no human society has ever been able to maintain both order and freedom apart from the moral precepts of the Christian religion. Should our republic ever forget this fundamental precept of governance, we will then be surely doomed. And what he was saying is if the gospel ever stops being preached in America, if the influence of Christianity ever subsides within America, we're, we're doomed. Because you've got to have that basic Christian character to uphold the values of our Constitution. And if you lose that, Christianity, if we forget about the Christian values, the gospel of Christ, then we're, we're going to be surely doomed as a country. But he also said, Every member of the state ought diligently to read and to study the constitution of his country and teach the rising generation to be free. By knowing their rights, they will sooner perceive when they are violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. That was our very first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. His take on the importance of Christianity preaching the gospel, but also knowing our king, our constitution, our Caesar, if we will, because that will protect our religious liberty. And if the constitution falls, if the freedoms fall, if our civil liberties fall, our religious liberties will fall. Francis Schaeffer said, he who will not use his freedom to preserve his freedom will lose his freedom. And neither his children nor his grandchildren will rise up and call him blessed. So our greatest need in America is a revival of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our greatest need by far. To have the religious liberty to preach the Gospel is something that's going to depend upon our civil liberties being preserved. But the greatest need for America is for us to have the freedom to preach the gospel. If we lose that freedom, we go underground. We continue to preach. 
But that is our greatest need is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Constitution can save our freedoms, but only Christ can save our soul. And what Peter is telling the church in his day is that generally these are your responsibilities. Obey your civil authorities. Be a good law-abiding citizen unless they tell you to disobey God. Then you have to obey God because He's our highest authority. Pray for them. Honor your, your King by exercising what He requires of us. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And our Caesar's requires our participation, our vote, and share the Gospel. Uh, I think that's in essence what we should take away from this passage of Scripture. Proverbs reminds us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And the only way a nation becomes righteous is when hearts change. And the only thing that can change the heart is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Common grace can do that on a, on a moral level to a degree, but we need to be bold for the Gospel of Jesus Christ and pray for our country and pray for wisdom and all the issues that we're facing in terms of how we respond in a way that honors our God and the King of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to grapple with a very challenging and difficult subject. Subject where there's lots of differing opinions. And I certainly understand that I've waded out into deep water this morning. So I pray, Lord, that whatever I've said or taught that is inaccurate, Lord, that You would uh, correct me and also uh, give understanding to those who hear. But Father, we do pray for our country. We thank You for our nation. We thank You for the principles upon which it was founded. And we pray for our leaders. And Lord, we rejoice that the Proverbs tell us that the heart of the King is like streams of water in the hands of the Lord that You turn it whichever way You wish. So Father, we pray that You would turn the hearts of our leaders to protect and preserve not only our civil liberties, but also our religious liberties as well that we might enjoy the freedom to worship You, to proclaim the Gospel, to see Your kingdom grow in our country. And we pray this, Lord, for the honor and glory of Your name. Amen.